going to go ahead and uh, I'm going to pray. Don't want to interrupt John Kinzer's visit here. <laughs> Good to see you all. I'm going to um, open us in prayer. And uh, as I'm doing that, if you want to turn to the New Testament, to the book of Philippians. Uh, but I wanted to uh, share two or three prayer requests. Um, perhaps you know uh, Chuck Duggan's um, daughter-in-law and uh, son. have uh, They've given birth to two children. And um, Chase is not uh, doing as well. Uh, prayer for gaining weight for him. And he has uh, infant uh, heart defects. So just prayer for them as they continue to walk with, uh, with their children through that. And then a, a little girl named Bryn, uh, Mac and Betty McWilliams' granddaughter. She has a 105 temperature, and they're not sure why she has that. So prayer for uh, tests and, and wisdom for the doctors to figure that out. And then um, our own Andy and Lauren, Lauren Wyatt, uh, she is with child. And uh, hopefully if we're not too much longer, uh, they're hoping to uh, induce. When would you say, John, tonight? Tonight. So please just keep her and your prayers and that process of induction. So let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we thank you for this time on Wednesdays to gather to eat, to fellowship, to look into your word. Pray that this would be true fellowship centered around Christ. Father, we do ask that you would be with Chase, uh, that dear little newborn. Um, we pray that uh, you'd help him to gain weight. Um, also that uh, you would uh, be able to continue walk with them as they deal with the infant heart defect. Uh, strengthen uh, those two little boys. Uh, strengthen the family as they walk through this. And we pray, too, for Bryn. Uh, we pray, Lord, that you'd give the doctors wisdom, the proper tests to figure out why her temperature is so high that that would come down and there would be no lasting effects. And, Father, for Lauren, as they induce her tonight, we pray that uh, she would deliver safely, uh, that uh, she and Andy would have a, a wonderful uh, little one uh, in their lives in the world uh, tonight. And so, Lord, we lay these requests at your feet and ask that you would be sovereign, uh, breathe, uh, be the good physician that you are, uh, and be sovereign in the lives of these children and adults. And uh, walk with us today in your word, in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to be in uh, Philippians chapter 1, um, and if you're in the covenant class, Sunday school class on Sunday mornings, I started a, uh, a series in the book of Philippians there on Sunday. Uh, we'll continue that for the next couple weeks here, and uh, if you don't have a Sunday school class or a home, we'd love to have you join us here on Sunday mornings, uh, but the covenant class will continue at least through August uh, to look at the book of Philippians. Um, I'm going to start reading in verse 1 and go through 11, but focusing today mostly on 3 through 11. Philippians chapter 1, verse 1 says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God and all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers of, with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness 
how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let me give a very brief uh, recap. Uh, many of you were not there on Sunday mornings, but you may be familiar with the book of Philippians, uh, one of the great epistles, prison epistles that Paul wrote. And so the, the context of this uh, book is he's in prison, uh, and he's writing to a, a church that he planted in, in the city of Philippi. Um, Acts chapter 16 gives us a history of, um, of the, the planting of the book or the, the church at Philippi. Uh, Paul uh, wanted to return to visit the sites of some of the churches that he had planted. He longed to go back uh, to, to these areas to refresh them, to encourage them. Uh, the Lord seemed to keep uh, redirecting him. Um, and we see in, um, we see in uh, Acts 16, uh, we see that um, Paul receives a vision of a man from Macedonia. And the message was simply this, come over to Macedonia and help us. Um, very irresistible to Paul, I'm sure, is longing to plant the gospel wherever he went. And so Paul is redirected to Macedonia uh, and, and redirected to the area of Philippi. Uh, this is a, a Roman town now, uh, first a Greek town, and so it's a Greek-speaking, a Latin-speaking, but it's a Roman town now. And so uh, Paul travels there. And in Acts chapter 16, we have this wonderful account, this wonderful story of Paul planting a church there. Uh, and we'll talk a little bit more about that as we go along. Kent Hughes, a, a commentator that I'll refer to often in this, said this. He said, Rome did not know it, but the flag of Christianity was unfurled in the empire that day. Uh, Philippi was at the crossroads on the way towards Europe. And so this was, the, uh, this was the, the birth of the beginning of the gospel going into Europe itself. And we see how God orchestrated that and led Paul to bring the good news to, to the continent of Europe or to the, to the region of Europe. Um, so when Paul go, travels to a new city, uh, his typical uh, um, pattern is to go to the synagogue. Uh, this was a small town and there was no synagogue because there were not enough Jewish men to warrant a synagogue. And so Paul... Um, in a sense, is forced to go elsewhere. Uh, he, he begins to look elsewhere. Um, but there was a Sabbath congregation uh, that gathered on the river banks of that city. And so in Rome, uh, Acts 16, 13, we see that, that Paul gathered with some women there on the river banks. And this was the planting of the Church of Philippi, its, its very beginnings. Uh, we also know that Paul got in trouble in that town. As he's going and he's preaching, he comes in contact with a, a young girl who is demon-possessed. And he casts out the demon, freeing this girl from bondage and possession. Um, but it angers the local merchants. This is the way they were making money off of her predictions or prophecies. And so he uh, and his companions are thrown into prison and beaten and, and treated horribly. Um, but the Lord uses this uh, to bring about the conversion of the jailer. And so we see this congregation beginning to build, uh, of including a, a, a young, uh, previously possessed girl, this, this woman named Lydia, uh, this jailer, and others. We see the planting of a church here, a church that Paul will come to love dearly. Some say Philippi was his favorite congregation, his favorite church. And so 
Paul plants this church in Philippi, but he's in prison now in Rome, and he longs to be with them. He longs to encourage them, and so he writes the book of Philippians to do just that. And you hear the language of love in the book of Philippians. This is a man who loves these people. This is a man who loves these people. Um, And so we'll look at three things today. True fellowship in Christ, true affection in Christ, true prayer in Christ. In reading, uh, again, um, Kent Hughes' commentary on this, he tells of of a a British chaplain who was in the Navy during World War II, uh, Broughton Knox, who was serving as a chaplain, uh, loving the men in the Navy. Um, And it was... It was at one point that a soldier comes to him and asks him a question. He says, why is it, uh, Reverend Knox, why is it that there seems to be a difference? This was on their return trip after the war was over. Why is it, Reverend Knox, that there seems to be a a difference in the camaraderie, a difference in the the attitude, a difference in the energy uh, now that the war is over? And Reverend Knox replies this way. He said, During those months that preceded and followed D-Day, our thoughts had a minimum of self-centeredness in them. We gave ourselves to our shared activity and objective. Once the undertaking was over, we reverted to our own purposes as we do normally. It was interesting that the men on the ship in fighting and combat, interacting with this chaplain, they noticed uh, a camaraderie, a closeness, a fellowship that was there present among them that, that seemed to disappear or change once the war had ended. So much so that they went to the chaplain and asked, what's different? What has changed? And the chaplain said that, that our focus has changed. We had purpose. We had meaning. We had, we, we, we had attention. And now that the war is over, not that we don't care about each other anymore, not that there's not a fellowship, but it's changed. We've We've, we've lost that selflessness. We've, we've, we've returned to our day-to-day lives, and we've taken our eyes off the objective, which was the winning of World War II. Isn't it interesting that there are times in our lives where we're so singularly focused that it draws us and connects us to people around us? If you've ever been on a short-term missions project, people always comment about how wonderful they usually are and how close you get on those times. Um, because there's a singular focus. You're there to, to do a job. Perhaps you're there to, to build a wall, to demolish a wall. You're there to, to bring uh, relief or aid. You're there to love on the children, perhaps, in an orphanage. And this singular-mindedness, this putting aside of the, the day-to-day cares, the single, singular-mindedness of focus draws you to the people there but it connects you in an an amazing and deep way with the people on your team. These men in World War II were noticing this. We notice this when we go on on missions projects or perhaps on a trip. What about in the church? Is there a singular focus in this church and in other churches? Is there a singular focus in your Sunday school class, your, your Bible study groups? Is there a singular focus that draws you, connects you to the people that are there? Paul talks about this here in in Philippians. Uh, He has a connection with the Philippians in a way that that is unique. Look at verses uh, 3 through 6. We see a a fellowship of Christ, a a fellowship that, that is founded on Christ that leads to true fellowship with one another. 
True fellowship in Christ leads to true fellowship with one another. Think about the Christian words that we throw around all the time that that maybe have lost their meaning, that have been watered down, words that we use all the time, even words, wonderful words like grace and and mercy. Uh, But isn't fellowship one of those? Don't we use fellowship a lot to mean a lot of different things? Like the word love, I love carrots, I love my wife, I love my dog. None of those are in the same way, right? Well, fellowship takes on a deeper meaning when we examine it, we look at it through the eyes of Paul as he talks about it in the book of Philippians. Fellowship can mean comradeship, sharing of good times, just hanging out together, gathering to talk or to eat, and those are right uses of the word fellowship. We're fellowshipping right now around the table. But doesn't Scripture use the word fellowship to mean something far, far deeper? True fellowship is a sharing in something, participating in something greater than the people involved and more lasting than the activities at any given moment. True fellowship means being caught up into a a communion created by God. True fellowship means that there is something outside of ourselves, something larger that unites us, that connects us, that draws us together. It's founded in Christ, and it's created by God. So Paul talks about that kind of fellowship, and you're probably familiar with the word koinonia. It's the word fellowship in the New Testament, and Paul uses it here. Paul's affection uh, rose uh, for these people out of his being with them, his planting that church. There was a purpose and there was a point to why he was there with them. And it was a fellowship that grew. But it was, when Paul uses the word fellowship, koinonia, it's, it's supercharged with action. It doesn't just mean a casual gathering together. It's supercharged with action. Paul's fellowship with the people grew out of conflict and grew out of suffering and grew out of planting this church. And he didn't just leave them uh, with inactivity. He, he pointed them to something greater. Verse 7 says this, it's right for me to feel this way about you all, because I, I hold you in my heart, for you're all partakers. That's that koinonia word, partakers, fellowshippers, with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. What, what a wonderful testimony that, that Paul sees that the Philippian people are united, bonded to him in Christ, even in his imprisonment. There's a fellowship that goes beyond sitting together around a table. They are fellowshipping even though he's in Rome, imprisoned, and they're in Philippi. Their fellowship binds them together, and distance can't separate that. Here we have the same uh, koinonia word fellowship as we have in verse 5. Verse 5 says, Because of of your partnership in the gospel from the first day, Until now, that word partnership, that that fellowship that Paul is talking about. So he uses the word koinonia in different ways at different times in this book, but it all comes back to that, that, that closeness, that bond they share in Christ that then propels them outward, propels them in love outward. Verse 6 is is that wonderful verse that probably many of us have memorized. And I'm sure of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Maybe one of the early verses that you memorized. A verse about perseverance of the saints. A verse that reminds us that God is the one who begins the work, and so God is the one who will complete 
the work. He'll bring it to completion. What God begins, he will finish. What God holds will not be lost. I don't know about your house, but my house has dozens of unfinished projects. I started painting, ran out of paint, moved on to something else. I began to build. It sits in the closet. How many of you have scrapbooks that you started early on or organizing of photos that now sit in a shoebox in your closet? How many unfinished projects do we have? And yet this is not the sense that we get here from from Paul, that God doesn't have unfinished uh, Christians sitting in a shoebox in heaven. He doesn't have people sitting in a box saying, well, I'll get to them one day. Maybe I'll finish that person. Maybe I'll bring that person to completion. Maybe salvation will be lasting for them. Maybe not. So we're in a shoebox in that eternal closet. No, with God, what he begins, he finishes. He tells us we will persevere. We will be persevered because God will walk with us. And Paul is saying this wonderfully. John 10 is another great passage that reminds us of this perseverance. Romans 8 So we see in this opening, we see this language of fellowship that that Paul is talking about here. He knows that he will persevere with these people because God is persevering with them. Their fellowship will continue. It's not a light and momentary fellowship. It's an eternal fellowship because God will persevere them. He will bring it to completion. Verse 7 continues us and says, again, it's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me in grace, both in my imprisonment and the defense and confirmation of the gospel. There's purpose behind their fellowship. There's affection here. True fellowship in Christ leads to true affection. True fellowship in Christ leads to true affection. If there is fellowship among you and other believers today, it will lead to affection for, for them, for other people, and a deepening love for Christ. In verse 8, Paul is using the, the, a strong oath to call attention to his love for them. He said, for God is my witness. This is a strong for Paul. He's declaring in the presence of God, God knows how deep my affection is for you. And it's a word Affection, in other translations, a yearning. One writer says there's a visceral component, a a gut-level component. This is not just a light and and casual enjoyment of someone. This is a deep center of your being kind of love for these people, a longing that, that comes deep inside a person. Perhaps you have that love, that affection for your children, for a wife or a husband, for for a loved one. But what Paul is talking about here is is this kind of fellowship, this kind of affection that can only come in Christ. It can only come in and through Christ. He's referring here to the fact that his love for them and the desire to be with them is so deep and so strong that it were as if Christ himself were, were saying it, were expressing that love through Paul. So Paul is saying that that my love for you is an expression of the love that Christ has for you. This union with Christ, this fellowship with Christ. It's a passionate fellowship. It's a a passionate affection that Paul has. Verse 8, how I yearn, another translation, how I long for you with the affection of Christ. 
Do you have that same kind of affection for believers in your life? If you're a member of this church, do you love the people of this congregation? If you're a member of another church, do you love the people that you gather with each week? Because I think if we're honest deep down, what Paul is talking about here is, is fairly strong. Because if you're honest, there are certainly people in this church or in your church or in your fellowshipping community that you have a hard time getting along with. You have a hard time loving. You can't get anywhere near saying that you have this kind of yearning, this kind of love for them. Because sometimes you have a hard time being in the same room with them, if we're honest. Do we yearn for other believers, or do we barely tolerate them? Do you want to be with other believers? If you know Christ, is there a a longing to return to fellowship? Is there a desire to be here on Wednesdays or at at, at church uh, worship Sunday mornings or to be involved in a Bible study? One of the marks of a believer is that there's fellowship. There's a gathering with other believers to sharpen one another, to to encourage one another, uh, to pray for one another. Paul talks here about his, his yearning, his longing, his desire to be with the Philippians. And it's not just a desire to be out of prison. It's not just a desire to be away from the sufferings that come with being in prison. He genuinely loves the Philippians. And he talks at other places about his love for the Colossians, his, his love for the other churches that he's planted. Can we say that we long to gather again each worship Lord's Day? Can we say that we long to gather with other believers because there is an affection in Christ that draws us together? Perhaps the the strongest affection that we have, this strongest uh, love for another, is is in marriage. And we see this this imagery used here. And how much deeper is, is our affection in marriage when it's founded on Christ and not just what the other person can do for me? When it's founded on Christ, when Christ is the center, and both husband and wife are drawn towards Jesus with a a true and abiding affection, how much deeper is their marriage, is their love? I had the privilege of of, um, conducting a a marriage ceremony Saturday. And it's been fun to watch this couple as they fall in love with each other, to watch that process week after week as we went through counseling together, and to see as they become closer to Christ, they, they grow in their love for one another. There's a true affection for each other. We also see here, though, that, that Paul's affection is not rooted in necessarily who the people are individually, but who they are in Christ. Because there's a, a, a vast diversity at the church at Philippi. We have a jailer. Uh, we have a violent man who, who almost kills himself in a crisis, except by being restrained by Paul. We have a slave gar- girl who's, who's been delivered by a spirit. We have a, a businesswoman who trades in purple cloth. We have other believers gathering together. What a diverse group of individuals, a young girl, an older woman, a, a man, different walks of life different professions now coming together, and the only thing that connects them, the only thing that can connect them, is Jesus Christ. So you see Paul's affection is not based on race, not based on social, socioeconomic standing, not based on what they can do for him. His love, his affection for them is in Christ, and so it spreads the spectrum. What often unites us together with other people? 
Perhaps we, we know across our nation we're, we're bound together uh, along racial lines. Perhaps we're bound together on social lines, rich or poor. We're bound on intellectual lines. We have people who are uh, intelligent, people who are not as much, uh, educational lines. And so we find ourselves dividing in these different ways. But remember Paul's own transformation. He was a Pharisee. He was a Jew, the Jew of Jews. A, a lover of the law, and, and he persecuted Christians. And yet now we see Paul spreading the good news of Christ, creating, as it were, other Christians. We see him going to these lands, this far-off land of Philippi. We see him crossing lines from uh, Gentile to, to Jew and Jew to Gentile, the rich and the poor, the soldier and the free man, slaves and free. And we see this wonderful diversity in how and who Paul loves. And his fellowship with them grew out of suffering. Um, We know that the Lord uses suffering in our lives. And the Lord used suffering in the life of Paul to bring him to the place of conversion. We know his, his conversion on the road where he was blinded and he was taken to other Jews and his eyes were open. The Lord used suffering in the life of Paul to bring about a radical conversion. Um, and now we see him suffering in prison, and we see how the Lord is using him. So true fellowship leads to true affection. And lastly, uh, true fellowship leads to true affection, which leads to true prayer. We have this wonderful uh, account here of Paul's prayer for the Philippian church. Um, And he prays for all of them. All the barriers in in society for Paul have been broken down. Jews and Gentiles, Greeks and Romans, rich and poor, slave and free. We see that, that, that gathering of believers at Philippi. And we see Paul not just loving them, but praying for them. We see that he does this with each of his letters. Colossians chapter 4, he says, in essence, he's telling others, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. So not only is he praying for for believers, but he's telling others to pray that way. We see that in Ephesians and Romans and Acts. But Paul reminds us here in in verses 9 through 11 that there are, uh, are things more important than our daily lives for which we're to pray. I don't know what your prayer looks like, but mine can be brief at times. Mine can be crisis-centered. Mine can be comfort-centered. I'm struggling, I'm suffering, and God, I want it to end, and I want it to end now. And some money thrown in would be nice, right? I mean, we, we, we sort of make these prayers. We make these prayers, and, and, and we, we, we talk to God, and we do pray, but oftentimes they're, uh, they're about us. Read with me verses 9 through 11. And listen for what's not here as much as what is here. And it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. You know, we hear a lot of things in, in Paul's prayer here, but we don't hear much about himself. If I'm in prison and I'm struggling, my prayers are probably going to center on me. Father, release me. Father, these jailers, make them kinder. 
Simple petty things like, they smell, God. Please take that smell away. They're not very kind to me. Please, please change them. And our prayers can go so much like that as we focus in on ourselves. But Paul here, in his affection, in his love, in his fellowship with the, with the Philippians, is focused on them. Paul prayed that the Philippians' love would overflow all dimensions in a lavish, ongoing, limitless love. An unremitting geyser of love up to God and a flood of love out to others. You hear the words that he uses as affection for the Philippians, but also his prayers for them are that they would love. They would know this kind of love in Christ and that they would show that to others. The second part of verse 9 says that he's praying for knowledge and insight. He's praying that they would know God's word. They would know the Lord so well. This is not a sentimental kind of love. God's, uh, Paul's not saying to them, I want you to have a, a general knowledge about God. I want you to have a, a love for people. You know, it's not, a, it's not a Hallmark greeting card. I don't know about you, but when I get a Hallmark card, I quickly look more for what the person who's sending it to me has written than I do the, the printed words that are there from Hallmark. Because they're nice, right? But they were written perhaps years ago on a computer by someone you don't even know. And they're nice, sentimental words, but they're not personal to you. The words that are pinned in, happy birthday, Greg, have a great day. I look to see, signed by my dad, who loves me and who doesn't write things like that often. When you're in the hospital, you look for that little side note saying, we're praying for you. We love you. We know you're struggling. So much deeper are those words from someone that you know than the Hallmark greeting card company. And so Paul is saying here that he wants them to have a knowledge of God that is personal, that's intimate. It's like those words written on the side of the card. Paul, in each of his four epistles, Ephesians 1, Philippians 1, Colossians 1, and Philemon, is encouraging and challenging a knowledge of God, a knowledge of God that comes only from, the, from revelation through the Holy Spirit and only comes from his word. So Paul is challenging us to know God and to pray for one another that we all might know him. And he, he prays for insight for them, a discernment, being able to discern what is right and, and what is wrong. And we see a progression here in his prayer, a limitless and overflowing love for God and others, flowing into a growing knowledge of God and Christ, ending with all of this leading to the practical insight for living. He doesn't just want knowledge for them, but he wants it to turn into practical insight for living. How to take scripture and apply it to our lives. Paul is so detailed in his prayers here. First part of verse 10, he prays so that you may be able to approve or discern what is best. How discerning are you in life's choices? How discerning are we in, in the best priorities, the best habits, the best pleasures or do we show a lack of discernment in our lives day to day? Paul is praying here that they would grow in their discernment for what is right and what is good and what is the best. Life is certainly a series of choices that we make daily. And Paul prays here that our choices would flow out of a knowledge of the love God has for us and an understanding of who he is in his word. The second part of verse 10 into 11 answers what is Paul's ultimate purpose for the Philippians. And he wants them to be ready 
for the day of Christ's coming. He prays that they would be pure and blameless, that idea of purity, that, that being unmixed with the world and the world's notions. Blameless, meaning without stumbling, so that they would be prepared, readied for the day of Christ's coming. Paul wants them to live a pure, morally transparent life, free from stumbling, that on the day of Christ's coming, they might be found ready, that their lives would be filled with the fruit of knowing Christ, of righteous living. Are your prayers like this? When you pray for people, and we do, and the Lord hears those, and those are wonderful, but have you ever prayed like this for someone? I was preparing yesterday for this, and so we had devotions as a family last night, and I pulled this out, and I, and I told my family how rarely do I really pray for them like this, this specifically, this deeply, this broadly and vastly. And then we prayed this, and I prayed this for my family, and I pray for you today for this as well, that our lives would be marked this way, that you would have a true fellowship that can only be found in Christ, that leads to, to true affection for others which leads to true prayer for one another. It's my prayer for us today. Let's pray. Father in heaven, this simple passage of nine or ten verses is so rich and deep and meaningful. Paul gives us a picture here of, of what true fellowship can look like. And that fellowship in Christ Jesus can lead to a true affection for other believers and for Christ himself and for a lost and dying world, Father, and that can lead to a, a true prayer life, a, a prayer life that is others-focused, a true prayer life that, that loves Christ and loves others in the words. Father, give us this. Give us the heart of Paul. Give us the heart of Jesus Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen. Well, thank you all again.